Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. The relationship between political freedom and power is a vexing and complicated one for supporters of democracy. One cannot exist without the other, and yet they are often at odds. Is it possible to reconcile the two? And how do Jews, main beneficiaries and opponents of political power, deal with this challenge? With me today to discuss these questions is Gil Troy, professor of North American History at McGill University, and Natan Sharansky, a man who should need no introduction, famous prisoner of Zion in the Soviet Union, and an activist for freedom around the world, an Israeli politician and leader and former head of the Jewish Agency. Welcome to the both of you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Thank you. So this conversation um, was brought about by a book the two of you authored entitled Never Alone, Prison, Politics, and My People, which is coming out in the 1st of September, um, which is effectively a kind of uh, memoir by, uh, by uh, Natan uh, and uh, worked on also by Gil. And I must say, uh, we'll discuss the various ideas that it contains uh, shortly, but I wanted to say that this is one of the much better written books I've read uh, on politics in general and on Israeli politics in particular in English. Uh, it's a very, uh, the language is simple and easy to understand and I would personally recommend it to anybody no matter uh, what their persuasion is to try and learns of some of the more uh, momentous events uh, in world and Jewish and Israeli history. So really kudos on that. Uh, so I'll start with the first question, which I ask all my guests. How did you two get into this? Why, why now? Why, uh, what, what inspired you to write a book about summarizing all these things now? Um, Natan, you want to start first? Yes. Oh, well, uh, first of all, because I, I did finish uh, close a very long circle in my life and spent, uh, having spent nine years uh, in prison uh, in the Soviet Union, nine years as a minister in Israeli government, and uh, uh, nine years in Jewish agency, which is like responsible for connection between Jewish people of the world and uh, Israel. So it's inevitable that you want to summarize and to compare your experiences from these three very different positions. But in all three of them, I was dealing with the dialogue between Jewish people uh, and Israel. Uh, but of course, uh, also the situation, uh, well, the situation is never boring in the Middle East, but in these days, we are part of the much bigger uh, crisis of the world. And here I think my experience of uh, isolation and uh, my experience of uh, trying to connect desire to be free and to desire to belong, identity and freedom, uh, that is the challenge of our today's life. And so of course I was very lucky to, to meet Gil who looks on all this as a uh, uh, with, from his Jewish-American experience. So comparing these experiences, we thought that it could be an interesting book. I think the, I think uh, the good fortune was mine. I was, I was the lucky one um, to have the opportunity and privilege to work with Natan, to befriend him and 
Abital and the entire family uh, was really one of the great adventures and the great uh, honors of my life. And what's interesting is that I, I appreciate what you said earlier about the writing. We, we worked very, very hard on every word, on the tone, on the language. And I'll admit we sometimes disagreed. But what's really interesting is that in the two and a half, three years we've been working on the book, we never had an ideological disagreement. And think about how different our worlds are. Um, Natan grew up in the Soviet Union in an oppressive dictatorship. I'm one of the spoiled brats of Jewish history, having been brought up in the United States of America in freedom, um, in prosperity. And yet we meet uh, here in Jerusalem and we meet day after day after day. And our commitment to belong and to be free, to those two notions of identity and uh, democratic freedom was very profound. And that's a very Jewish Kind of conversation, a very Israeli kind of kind of conversation, a very Zionist conversation, but also a very liberal democratic kind of kind of conversation. That's a very good segue into my next question. Um, I've been I've become very interested in not the Second World War, but the First World War and its effect on the world at large. Uh, and I noticed, Nathan, that your parents, according to your memoir, were born. Um, before the revolution happened. And I was curious, I mean, they were they were fairly young, but I was curious if any of them made any mention of those events because in addition to the revolution and the political turmoil, uh, it was also a period of some of the worst anti-Semitic pogroms uh, to befall uh, Jews between the Chmelnitsky revolt of the 17th century and the Holocaust. I was curious as to whether or not they mentioned that or discussed it at all. Well, of course, uh, anti-Semitism was a very big part of our Jewish life. In fact, I would say the only Jewish thing that we had in our life, in our childhood, was anti-Semitism. And discussions of anti-Semitism always begins from Tsarist Russia, from those pogroms which made so many Jews uh, to leave Russia, and the hopes, the hopes which uh, came with the revolution. My father was like 15 years old boy when he decided that uh, uh, now that is the, uh, the great times when we can become part of the free world. We don't have to hide in shtetls. The communists will bring real equality and freedom for everybody. Well, it took probably from five to 10 years before these illusions disappeared and the uh, cruel reality of Stalin's dictatorships uh, became part of our uh, daily life. Uh, but yes, uh, the, uh, always the memories of the family start from the fact, uh, the tragedy of the anti-Semitism in Russia and the new hope which came uh, with the revolution. And of course, uh, it was false hope. Okay, so I bring that up also because uh, you are a great advocate of uh, freedom around the world, political freedom uh, for all nations uh, within their specific identities. I bring that up because uh, you are also very well known um, for having been a great supporter of the uh, democratization of Iraq and countries in the Middle East uh, during the Bush era. And as you mentioned in your memoir, you've been for the freedom of peoples for a very long time. 
but I have to wonder, uh, your memoir kind of skirts the failures and mentions the successes. We mention um, the great and very welcome success uh, of Eastern Europe uh, becoming democratic and free after the collapse uh, of the Iron Curtain. But the truth is, is that before the Soviet Union took over, there was this great hope of freedom, as you mentioned, there was the hope of the revolution in Russia. There was, uh, there were new democratic states uh, throughout Europe after the First World War. And within 20 years, most of them, if they weren't outright dictatorships, uh, they were at best semi-democratic. In other words, it was kind of more like the, not as bad, but kind of like the Arab Spring that we saw here before. And I was wondering, how do you reconcile the fact that you still very much think freedom is not only possible, but desirable uh, for all peoples with the fact that, well, it seems to run into all sorts of roadblocks and that's pretty much everywhere. Uh, well, uh, as I uh, discuss this book and many other books, I believe that all the people in the world, uh, if given an opportunity to choose to live in fear under dictatorship or to live without uh, fear, not to be afraid to express fully their thoughts and their desires, will choose, of course, the freedom. But uh, between the desire to, of people to, uh, to live free and fight against dictatorship and uh, Creating a civil society is still a long way of building uh, democratic institutions. And there are no, no shortcuts. And uh, there are many forces which try to slow down this process. And my criticism, as usual, uh, is about the free world, which is, uh, instead of seeing this desire of people to be free, their main ally, and looking for the ways how international politics can help these people instead of this always are trying to find or as a rule are trying to find reliable dictator who has can deliver them uh, stability and that's how the soviet regime even when it proved what an awful dictatorship it is still was looked again and again as a possible uh source of stability uh, and uh, as a result, in the Arab world, again and again, uh, uh, the West tried to build firm and strong uh, relationship and uh, a stable world by supporting all types of uh, dictators. Having said all this, I never meant that you can bring uh, freedom uh, by, by the strength of your army. Uh, the best example, of course, is uh, President Reagan, who uh, understood very well the evilness of Soviet Union, but also the weakness of this system. And in fact, linked very closely uh, relations between the, these two countries and the question of uh, human rights. Okay. Um... If, I could, if I could plunge in, your, your question actually gets in some ways to one of the unique dimensions of the book. Um, first of all, for me personally, my main job is being an American historian, an American presidential historian. So right, I right. usually play alone in the sandbox. I write by myself and I usually write about dead presidents and this unique opportunity uh, to work with uh, a living, breathing, um, inspirational character was, you know, outside my, my, my normal comfort zone. And I didn't do a lot of research. And uh, 
but one of the aha moments we definitely had, and this, as I said, gets to the core of the, of the message of the book and the approach of the book, was, you know, we said, the, our, our method was, uh, Natan would talk, I would write, uh, then uh, Natan would edit, and we'd go back and forth again and again and again. And Natan is talking about this universal desire for every person to be free. And it's coming very much from his experience in the Soviet Union. And one day I find a book on Amazon about the Arab Spring. And the same language that Natan Sharansky uses when he describes his experience with Andrei Sakharov and other Russian heroes of freedom in the 1970s emerges from the mouth and in the pens of these uh, Arab democratic activists in Yemen and in Libya and in Egypt. I, I literally got goosebumps because they talked about the fear society that imposed so much fear on them. And then that moment, which obviously eventually vanished, but that moment in each of the revolutions um, or the attempted revolutions when they sensed the fear disappearing. And so what the book is trying to do is through the perspective of this extraordinary life of Natan's, not give a whole political science uh, tract or historical explanation, because indeed, you know, while Woodrow Wilson's uh, 14 points in the League of Nations, and indeed you talk about the importance of World War I, unleashed um, so much good and so many opportunities for nationalism at its best, but also often ended up nationalism at its worst and nationalism at its most uh, decadent. But still that, uh, that, that essential insight of the human desire to belong and to be free sort of courses throughout the book, but also we can find in all kinds of strange places. And then all of a sudden, while writing the book, um, we start noticing, hey, there's something going on in Hong Kong. And again, we find testimonies in newspapers uh, about the same, this, this deep desire. So the book is trying to say, look, obviously life is messy. And we zero in, of course, on the big mess of Oslo and the Palestinian uh, problem and the uh, failure, and I think that's not too strong a term, of the Israelis and the Western powers, especially the United States of America, when they imported in, uh, Yasser Arafat back into uh, the, uh, into uh, Israel slash Palestine from his uh, exile and built up a dictatorship as a way of trying to achieve peace. So we're well aware of, the, of that failure, but still for all the frustrations and all the need for uh, major improvements, both from the Palestinian civil society and so many other places around the world, we still see that deep, deep desire uh, to have that freedom and to free yourself from the fear. Uh, That's very. Uh, I I only want have to add that uh, uh, example of uh, Arafat and Oslo is absolutely opposite to to attempts to build a free society. It's attempt to bring dictator from Tunis and to impose this dictator on Palestinians and uh, and in this way to bring peace. That's why I was from the very first days. Uh, against Oslo Agreement, and that's what I explain in this book, that uh, the the first statements of our late uh, Prime Minister that uh, Arafat as a dictator will be better fighter against Hamas than we, and that's why we can rely on him, that's what made me to, to resist the very idea of uh, uh, trying to build peace uh, by imposing a dictator on Palestinians. All, all fair enough. Um, 
But if I may push back a bit, um, to take the examples specifically from the Middle East, uh, let's take a look at Turkey. Okay, for example, Turkey for almost 100 years after the First World War, uh, Mustafa Kemal establishes a secular westernized democracy, but it's sort of a semi-democracy. It's a democracy where the enforcer of the of the Western nature of the country is the army, which is always a problematic issue. And then comes this guy, Tayyip Erdogan, right? He wins several elections. He clearly enjoys popular support. He, at no point, he does not seem to have, you know, there's still legal other parties or Vladimir Putin, technically speaking. Again, I agree entirely technically. He is not a formal dictator. But in both cases, there seems to, at the very least, not be enough opposition or enough popular opposition to the designs uh, of both countries, uh, even though they technically have a democratic government. So I have to wonder, maybe there's, is, is it possible that part of the struggle of the dissident is not just to fight against autocracy, but to also get his own uh, the rest uh, to, get, to get his countrymen to be interested enough to fight, and if so, how does one do that, especially nowadays? Uh, I'll start. The first of all, you know, I was a political scientist for one day, uh, because even as an undergraduate, when I, I sat there and I heard all these lovely theories, I said, "There's no science to politics." Um, there are all kinds of insights you can glean. And I walked across the hall uh, uh, and, and went to the history department. And history acknowledges irrationality. History acknowledges unpredictability. History acknowledges that there are certain core ideas, ideals. There can be uh, certain universals like this freedom from fear. But uh, indeed, chaos often reigns. And I have what I call my slob theory of history, which is when people often see, when people often see conspiracies, what I just see is at any given time, this guy's smoking a cigarette. Uh, that woman went out um, for, for, for a break and boom, you know, stuff happens. So when we, you know, and, and but in my one day as a political scientist, uh, everybody was really into modernization theory. And everybody was into this notion that somehow or another there was this, there was this engine of history and everything was becoming increasingly modernized, increasingly westernized. Of course, this was created in the West. So it was, you know, very self-serving narrative. And on the one hand, uh, I'm old enough that this was long before the Soviet Union collapsed and none of these geniuses could um, anticipate that. So on the one hand, in the last 40, 50 years, we've seen some advances that we couldn't ex expect or predict. But we've also seen a massive uh, backsliding uh, in the Arab world, um, you know, the rise of, 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 of a politicized Islam, uh, the things that happened in Iran, Iraq, as you mentioned, Turkey. So all this is to say that um, we as, you know, Natan as an activist um, and as a political leader uh, and as a humanist, and I as a historian um, and, 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 and a humanist, we both want to say, look, there are certain core ideals. There are certain core ideas. There are certain um, values that are worth preserving and worth defending and worth trying to develop, but it's certainly not uh, an easy Path and uh, Natan was, was, was a trained mathematician um, and physicist, and I think he could tell you the difference between that very orderly world and our quite chaotic world. Natan, you'd like that? Yeah. 
I want to say, you, you uh, said a number of times that uh, the Turkish leader and the Russian leader are technically not dictators. They are elected again and again by their people. I have to say, technically, Stalin was not a dictator, technically. Uh, <coughs> he was receiving on the election 99% of the vote. But it was, uh, of course, a dictatorship, uh, one of the most awful dictatorships, which, in order to continue to rule, had to increase all the time the level of fear and the level <coughs> of repressions and so on. Turkey, Turkey regime, of course, that Erdogan came to power as a result of free elections, but every next elections he had to use more and more violence. And today it's one of the most cruel uh, regimes where an even smaller opposition brings to thousands of people being arrested and, uh, and tortured and raped and uh, all types of uh, awful things, not speaking about uh, minorities uh, and, uh, and other, uh, other groups. Uh, Russia, of course, it's not dictatorship with Gulag and with KGB uh, uh, when millions were in Gulag or millions were in formers of KGB. It's not. But it's the country where uh, the leaders have to poison the, the leaders of the opposition, what happened just a few days ago, where the leaders have to make all types of efforts to change their constitution in the way that the leader can stay there uh, forever. The country where it was practically first the courts lost their independence, uh, then the local authorities, and, and now practically, uh, unfortunately, it's very corrupt system with uh, which took back a lot of freedoms which were gained in Russia uh, 20, 25 years uh, ago. So uh, now uh, the, the challenge of free. Uh, the democratic dissidents in all these countries, of course, it's not only to fight against the regime or to to uh, give the, the example to all the people, but by your own uh, independence and uh, speaking freely your mind, but also try to do everything to introduce to the people the advantage of free institutions. And the role of the West is to use all its power and all its connections, all this linkage, to to encourage building of these uh, uh, civil institutions. Uh, and that's a big effort. It, uh, it takes generation after generation efforts. It doesn't happen in one day. It doesn't even happen in one generation. But only consistent policy of the free world here can help. And what we are lacking, we are lacking any consistent policy. There can be two or three or five years of uh, policy of linking relations with the human rights, but then immediately it's abandoned. Fair enough. It's definitely a very difficult thing to handle. Um, while we're talking, though, about uh, very broad, very broad and great ideals of freedom, I thought I might bring up a very interesting uh, distinction that you made. Uh, in the memoir among Jewish conceptions of power, uh, very broadly between Israeli conceptions of power and what you call Isaiah conceptions of power based on the prophet Isaiah, uh, with David 
being the king, the responsible sovereign, the one who has to make the tough decisions, the one who can't afford to be purely theoretical because he has a people to protect, and the and the people mostly who live in the safely in the United States and perhaps elsewhere. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, who see themselves more as, as the often overused slogan goes, speaking truth to power. Uh, I thought perhaps you might uh, elaborate a bit on that and why you think that division is so so important. This gets to... Well, uh, okay. okay. Uh, first of all, it's not uh, 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 two different uh, uh, ways of power. Both of these ways are Jewish. One is uh, symbolized by uh, David, the other by Prophet Isaiah, but in fact, uh, each of us pre uh, 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 wants to be both at the same time. Uh, the thing is that simply uh, Israel, for its own survival, as, has as a top priority the need to fight physically for its existence. That's why uh, when we think about King David, we first of all think about uh, need to continue his uh, tradition of uh, fighting for our right to have uh, our state. And uh, uh, let's say American Jewish community, which is the second biggest Jewish community uh, in the world, uh, for its own survival, uh, has to uh, how to keep society in which they live liberal, how to live it, accepting them as a minority. And uh, so for them, of course, uh, the, uh, the in, in their set of priorities, uh, the uh, liberal society, respecting hu uh, uh, human rights of everybody, that's uh, number one priority. The fact that we, for our own survival, as a community, as those who chose to live in Jewish state, and those who chose to live as a minority in the liberal, the most liberal country in the world, hopefully. The fact that their sets of priorities are different doesn't mean that one is true to David, and the other is true to Isaiah. It simply, it's, it, Make, it gives us unique opportunities through dialogue with one another to, to appreciate both of these traditions in Jewish life. One of the motivations in writing the book was, uh, you know, again, after Natan's nine years in Gulag and nine years in uh, Israeli politics and nine years in Jewish agency, he had three very different perspectives on this thing called Israel-Diaspora relations. Uh, but fundamentally, from those three different perspectives, he saw the power of our unity when um, w when we're open to it, and that the unity doesn't require uniformity, but does require a certain kind of openness to that keyword that he just used, dialogue. And to get to a constructive dialogue, you have to accept difference. And so these two labels of uh, Davidian and Isaiah are ways of saying to most American Jews, not all, and most Israeli Jews, not all, that yes, it's one thing, as Natan was saying, to live as a Jewish majority in a very tough neighborhood called the, called the Middle East, where your most important job every single day uh, is this Davidian impulse to survive and to maintain sovereignty and to defend 
Israel and the Jewish people, and in many ways the West, from your enemies, who were often quite vicious and, uh, and, 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 and quite anxious to, to wipe you out, both ideologically uh, as well as um, body, you know, soul in, in body and in soul. And, the, uh, and, and so we, we need to understand that the most Israeli Jews are starting from that perspective. And we also need to understand that most American Jews, as a minority, living in a, uh, in, in a liberal world where it's for them the most important thing is for the majority to accept them, and especially if we talk blue and red states, uh, most American Jews live in, uh, in blue states. And so you then have to have this kind of Isaiah impulse of uh, searching for justice and universalism and, and peace, and as you put out, put, put truth to power. But indeed, when you actually read all of David, you also see there was a side of David that wasn't just uh, slaying Goliath and uh, leading armies and, and defending the sheep uh, and his flock uh, as he became king, but it also was David the, the harpist and David the psalmist. And when we read the full Isaiah, not just the, 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 the happy parts that many American Jewish rabbis like to pick out um, for their congregants, we see that there's also a strong sense of nationalism and sometimes a violence in Isaiah. And so that's the ultimate message, that yes, a constructive dialogue in some ways has to start with difference, acknowledging difference, accepting difference, but also seeing that underlying it, there's a shared purpose, which is neither of us, neither group, not the diaspora Jews, not the Israeli Jews, want this amazing adventure called the Jewish people to end on our watch. And we want to understand where we differ, but also where we have certain underlying uh, connections. And what we're trying to do is give people tools both to recognize the difference, to name the difference, and also to lean in to the common themes and common concerns. Uh, in the end, uh, I mentioned in the beginning that I believe all the people uh, have two basic desires. To, uh, to belong, to have identity, and to be free. And, uh, and we Jews, for sure, we want and we need to be nationals, and we want to be universalists. And we are uniquely situated by uniting our experience of Israel and the experience of American Jewry. We can have a unique combination of this uh, uh, enjoying our uh, universalism and our particularism. And, uh, but for this, we really have to be very open to the dialogue with one another in trying, if not to agree, to understand the other side. And that's what is the main message of our book. Well, that's, uh, that's certainly a great ideal. Um, but I would like to say that having read the book, I felt not an enthusiastic skepticism, but nevertheless a sad sense of skepticism. I've been um, on and off involved in, you know, engaging with all sorts of people on the other side of the American political divide. And my experience has been those who are open to listening will listen, uh, especially if they're in the audience uh, or perhaps if they're actively engaged with me. But those who are not interested in listening simply will not listen. Um, and I have to wonder how many people really, realistically, uh, who are actively involved in uh, Israeli political life or who are actively involved in American or other country politi uh, 
at Community Life are really interested in dealing with the reality that they have fellow Jews who they need to they need to love each other just as much, but that who will probably just never see things their way. It, it, what are the, what are the odds nowadays? With by, based on your experience. Well, uh, uh, let's put this not enough. The, for, for sure, and I write a lot, we write a lot about this in the book, uh, how, uh, uh, how very often you see that American Jews are not sensitive enough to the great needs of our security and how very often uh, they would uh, uh, prefer the position of their president uh, even w uh, when this position uh, endangers our security. And on the other hand, and we write also a lot about it, how often Israel uh, ignores or is not ready to understand the world to, uh, to the importance of, let's say, li liberal Judaism or different ways of keeping uh, 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 their Judaism in the conditions of uh, diaspora. So I'd, I, we definitely want both sides to to make effort to understand more the other side. Uh, but on the other hand, and that's also my, my experience, overwhelmingly Jews want to stay as a one family in their journey. And, and those who are not interested uh, to be part of Jewish family, well, they are lost. But most of them, even those who look like the most uh, assimilated, or those who to the continent Israel seem like the, uh, those who are really uh, are not ready uh, to to uh, to do anything, uh, any effort uh, for giving the, the feeling to the Jews of diaspora that it is their home too. But in the end, when they say, "But do you feel that?" Uh, do you want to stay as a part of a bigger Jewish family? Do you agree that Israel is something that belongs to all the Jews of the world? And I saw it in the government, and I saw it in different Jewish communities in America. And then people do want. They, are not, uh, they don't know how much they are ready to sacrifice for this, or if at all. But they, they want to stay as a family. And I, I try, try all the time, I try, try to, to use this desire of theirs to be as a family, to make them to make to make an effort to listen to one another, you say it's idealistic maybe, but in the end, as I saw it in the end, uh, to to uh, at the time when Jews have any problems in any part of the world, Israelis feel that they have to be mobilized, that they have to help. Then when Israel has real tsaras here in the Middle East, and uh, I saw it. Uh, the most liberal Jews who are full of criticism of Israeli government uh, are mobilized to help. So uh, we, we really have to find ways uh, to, to improve our uh, communication, no doubt. Uh, and uh, uh, just we are now in a very bad moment of big polarization in America, in Israel, and as a result between Israel and the uh, diaspora. But no, what? no, I'm wrong. We, there is a big polarization in America. There is serious polarization in Israel. I would say there is more understanding of the need to keep our channels open 
between Israel and the Jewish people than before. Okay. Um, Gil, would you like to add to that? Yes. I mean, again, one of the tools we're trying to give is the language of divergence and convergence. Where do our interests converge, come together? Where do they uh, diverge? Where do they go apart? And there's also something that we see, what I call the, this great disconnect, because unfortunately, especially with social media and especially with, um, uh, you know, the, the, the culture of hysteria and polarization and partisanship. And um, by the way, and I should say that you're so much not a part of it with your thoughtful, balanced, um, substantive approach. So really hats off because it's not, it's not the popular way these days. Um, the, it's, it's, we always hear the loudmouths and we always hear the shriekers. And there's a great disconnect between the, the shrill conversation going on in Israel about American Jews and in American Jewry about Israel and the poll numbers. The poll numbers show that, for example, during one of our many, 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 many elections this past year, uh, Israelis were asked, is it important for you that um, that the next prime minister be a leader of the Jewish people, and over ninety percent said yes. That it's maybe not the top criterion they use because at the end of the day they're they're voting on um, you know these days on COVID, on economics, on security, but it's still an important value. Um, we talk about the drift of American Jewry and American youth and America and the media uh, again and again and again. But when you actually look at the numbers, I would say God bless America. Seventy percent of Americans support Israel, 90% of American Jews, and anywhere between 80 and 95% of American Jewish youth, many of whom have gone on that extraordinary program called Birthright, continue to support um, Israel and the Jewish people. And that's part of the reason why we also give in the first part of the book this unconventional reading of the Soviet Jewish movement. Because everybody remembers it now in these kind of, you know, gauzy tones of, oh, we were all united and singing Shlachet Ami. And one of the things that Natan emphasizes is, you know, he's there in Moscow um, under tremendous pressure uh, from the KGB, and he's sometimes forced to smuggle two different sets of documents um, to two, I'm sorry, the same set of documents to two different Jewish organizations on both ends of Fifth Avenue because one won't speak to the other. And we have not just PhDs, but we have advanced degrees as Jews in fighting amongst one another over organization and over ideological differences and turf battles. And, and somehow or other, we've, we've continued uh, fighting together and staying together. And so the message that we keep on emphasizing, and it's in the book title, is never alone. That, you know, for all the insanity uh, that he experienced in the Soviet Jewish movement, he knew that when he was in the gulag and the KGB kept on telling him, you're abandoned, you know, no, I'm never, I'm never alone. I'm, there still is this, is this people behind me, and that's an extraordinary asset. And um, we're hoping that, uh, and perhaps it is idealistic, especially uh, in, in, in these days, the Democratic National Convention, the Republican National Convention, and the uh, Israeli dance uh, of the coalition uh, constantly teetering. But we're hoping that the broader message of this book, which is using the Jewish people as a model of how to disagree, but also work together, will spread to Americans and to Westerners and to other democratic communities which have to understand that in order for work, us to work together we can't just wait for when we have a common enemy we also have to have a sense of common good and common goals even as we acknowledge differences and we also have to accept complexity everybody wants either or oh i'm a liberal or i'm a nationalist i want to belong or i want to be free and i think the the core message of the book is 
we can, it's not always either or, it can be and. Um, I'm a liberal and a nationalist. I want to belong and be free. And that's the power of the Jewish experience. And that's the power of Zionism. That's very well put. And it's something that I wanted to uh, address as our final, uh, final question. Uh, Natan puts it wonderfully. I don't know if Herzl ever actually used the expression, but I love your term, uh, that Herzl envisioned the state of Israel as a mosaic mosaic. In other words, it's Herzl's term. It's, it's not mine. I'd like to take credit, but it's Herzl used this term. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful term. Yeah. Um, and basically envisioning a, a, a people that is has certain core values that they unite around, certain core values that they unite around, um, but on the other hand, very much often diverge in custom, in attitude, and in political attitude. Um, and I very much enjoyed uh, your portrayal of uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who, who nowadays is an extremely polarizing figure. But you uh, made a very good point, and it's something that's true of all previous Israeli Prime Ministers too, or at least the good ones. The ones who understand that in a democracy you are managing messy diversity and not diversity of the kind that people talk about uh, on the left often, of a very corporate, looks nice, everybody of different colors and genders, but of people with very different uh, clashing realities, and you have to somehow herd all the cats together and unite them. Um, but the thing is, is that, as you, Gil, mentioned, um, we need to be able to find a way to work without a common enemy, and that's a real challenge. I mean, America has been tearing itself at the seams uh, culturally, ever since the Cold War ended. Uh, there was a brief moment of unity after 9-11, and that sort of dissipated when the Iraq War went south. So the question is, I mean, as the, as the, as the uh, Hebrew expression goes, if the, the great pine woods are, are uh, set ablaze, what will the moss say? Like, what? What can we offer uh, that a country with as much rich experience as the United States seems to be, seems to be struggling with? Well, uh, speaking about America, I would say that uh, America is extremely important for all the world, as everybody who was fighting in the Soviet Union knew that uh, how hopeless would uh, look the world if there was not uh, America, with its uh, powerful democracy, with uh, absolute support of the freedom of speech, and at the same time uh, so, uh, supporting uh, the right of our nation to have its own state. And I have to say, uh, if situation is, if I'm concerned, I'm really very concerned about many things which are happening in America, First of all, I'm concerned about returning of Marxism. The fact that Marxism will return not through some violent uh, uh, revolution in the free world when another dictator will try to, uh, to, uh, to gain control over one or another country, but that Marxism, uh, as opposed to liberalism, will come from the grassroots, will come from the academy, will, will come back uh, from this uh, postmodern uh, desire to see the world without 
nations and without borders. And uh, as uh, John Lennon said, the world where there is nothing to die for. Uh, and, uh, and, and today we see uh, the, the results of it, like uh, I write about the importance of the book, Closing of American Mind of Bloom, Alan Bloom, which was written about 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And uh, it was like the first alarm um, bell. So that, that's uh, first. And, and second is, uh, it's great that America continues to fight for human rights and against racism. And of course, it's extremely important. But then when America starts uh, putting in doubt its own unique history of uh, traditional American revolution, when uh, uh, there is an attempt to rewrite its own history and, uh, and try to say if uh, our leaders were not saints, then uh, let's throw away all what they brought with themselves. That's something for me is very frightening because after all, uh, we don't have more powerful mechanism of, uh, of narrative of bringing the ideas of uh, freedom and identity to this world than the mechanism which was built first by our Bible tradition and then by American Revolution. So I do think that we, as Jews and as Israelis, have a lot to give to this world by reminding about the importance of nationalism and universalism and by linking it in our struggle for Jewish democratic state in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, I hope that America also will uh, continue its great tradition of seeing human rights uh, uh, as uh, the main tool of its influence uh, on the world. Yeah. So first of all, you know, what he said, um, this, is, this is that kind of Vulcan mind meld. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking how, you know, we're from different generations, we're from different uh, parts of the world where we've had such different life experiences. I mean, Natan in, in, in one minute in the Gulag endured more and suffered more than I've in, in endured or suffered in my entire life on this planet. And yet I, he, he always makes my neck hurt because I'm just nodding in agreement again and again and again. And that's been that's been sort of the the delight and, and, and the front of the book and that common platform that um, we are actually able to build and that more of us need to build because again we live in a toxic world where social media and and the mainstream media often emphasizes the differences the divergence the wedge and hides some of the underlying things um, I, I I totally connect to what you were saying earlier about you know the messiness uh, when I'm on the speaker circuit back when we used to travel that. Um, lovely verb that uh, is not used so much anymore. Um, I used to say to students on university campuses, I said, if you listen to me and you say, hallelujah, I see the light, I get nervous because somebody else is going to come. They're going to be funnier. They're definitely going to be better looking. Um, they're going to be smarter. And then you'll say, hallelujah, I see that light. But if you say, ah, oh, I see the grays, then we can start the conversation. And, and, and that messiness is important. And then, you know, we see when you talk about you know, the inability to recognize a common enemy, let alone to unite against a common enemy, uh, it's not only an American problem. I mean, right now in the Jewish world, in the American Jewish world in particular, we have this insane conversation going on about what's worse, left-wing anti-Semitism or right-wing anti-Semitism. 
And we keep on pointing out in the book that that is a, a, a sterile, empty, reductionist debate, and that uh, ultimately, anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism. There has to be a clear red line saying no to all forms of bigotry, including Jew hatred, in whatever plastic form it, it takes. And ultimately, we need the left to police itself and fight left-wing anti-Semitism, and the right to, to police itself and its allies and fight right-wing anti-Semitism. Instead, the left is always yelling and screaming about Trumpian anti-Semitism and the alt-right, and nobody listens to them. And the right is always yelling about campus anti-Semitism, and nobody listens to them. And so ultimately, why am I optimistic? Uh, first, because I'm a Zionist, and both David Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir said, you can't be a Zionist and a pessimist. Um, and again, take, take this extraordinary life story we're telling. Uh, if Natan Sharansky wasn't um, an optimist, if he had succumbed to the totally natural, normal impulse to be terrified or to be paralyzed or to give up, he would have given up again and again and again, uh, not only during the nine years that he was um, in prison with no clear direction uh, out, because nobody knew the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Nobody used, knew Ronald Reagan would succeed in pressuring uh, Gorbachev. Nobody knew his wife, Avital, would be so darn effective in, 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 in helping him. But even in the three years um, before that, the five years before that, when, when they were in this insane struggle in the Soviet Union. So A, you have to be an optimist because sometimes bad stuff happens, but a lot of times in this world, good stuff happens. But the deeper issue is this, that we're lucky. For all our troubles at this point, for all our frustrations and all our fears, um, both Israel and the United States of America and the Western democracies more generally have a resilience, have a depth, have a common set of values, a common set of concerns. I'm not willing to give up on Israel. I'm not willing to give up on the American-Jewish-Israel uh, Israel relationship. And I'm certainly not willing to give up on the United States of America. And again, because I'm not a political scientist, I don't need a directional. And I can see the cycles, the cycles of history, the cycles of life. And, um, and I know that, we will, um, that we're going through a bad time, but I also know that we have a, a depth um, in, in, in both societies through our values, through our, um, through our ideals, and through individuals who stand up and, and emerge as heroes, um, not professorial types, but real activist types, uh, to make things better. Very nice. Uh, so if I may sum up uh, and add three words to the book, Never Alone, which is coming out next week on the 1st of September, it's Never Alone and Always Dreaming. Gil, Nathan, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, and keep up your great work. And let us say amen. <laughs> uh, thank you, Ari, uh, and shalom, Yerushalayim.
Hi, thank you very much for having me. So, believe it or not, I think Twitter and Mike, the more recent exposure to Twitter that I've seen, particularly after uh, the last U.S. presidential election, um, where I just saw this stuff being used more and more often. And, you know, you're right. Uh, this People have been selectively citing stuff from scripture or from sacred texts for, you could argue, centuries. Um, often to uh, promote or advocate certain political policies or various agendas. Um, but just based on pure exposure, I saw a lot more of it and a lot more activism behind it, particularly on social media um, in the wake of uh, uh, President Trump's election as a way of almost, I would assume, to energize a religious base to... In, the cases I dealt with uh, oppose certain policies that um, uh, that people see have just been uh, taking over, um, and also not just in the U.S. but also in Israel. Um, there was a candidate for uh, in labor um, for their slate who. Um, uh, uh, a reporter had sent me a link to his campaign video that used about three or four of the same things that uh, I had mentioned that get cited often enough in the U.S. And you find that in uh, in Israel, too. Um, so I think it was the impetus for me doing it now uh, was just being inundated with it repeatedly uh, and seeing it spread because slogans by their nature uh, are supposed to be sticky. They're, they're designed to be easily repeatable that you could hang so much on that people can, you know, write a couple of words on a placard and bring them to protests and shut down conversations just by saying a couple of words uh, as a substitute for an argument because you just assume, oh, these words mean exactly what I want them to. So it was just so, so much of it as of late that I was exposed to, and that was probably why now uh, it was before anything else. Sure. Um, so the first one that I had in my head when I did this uh, came after... Uh, the travel ban, which was, if I'm remembering right, one of Trump's first major actions after uh, the inauguration. Uh, I think it was in uh, it was in January, and immediately after he signed that, there was you know protests all over the place, and there happened to have been one uh, in Jerusalem too that. Uh, I happened to have attended. It was the first uh, political rally that I had been to since, I think, Soviet Jury many years ago. Um, and it was something which I personally felt very strongly about, even you know, ignoring the, the substance of the, uh, of the executive order. My feeling at the time was that it was written with all of the care and cons concern of like a college student 
who's writing a term paper and starting 2 a.m. the night before it was due. And anyone who has that much power and wields it so cavalierly really needs to, you know, be held in check. But at this, you know, at, at this, uh, this rally, I noticed there were a whole bunch of signs, you know, that said, love the stranger. Uh, implying, well, people from other countries, we, you know, as associating the biblical commandment of loving the stranger explicitly with refugee policies of having, uh, however, I, I mean, didn't really get into argument details with them. Um, but the assumption, considering it was against the, uh, uh, the travel ban, was the whole idea of saying this group, however you want to define, is going to be excluded. Well, this goes against Jewish ideals. Um, and I understood kind of where this is coming from, but I was also thinking that, you know, if you're going to use the biblical model of a ger, uh, which is the Hebrew term for stranger, um, and you take that to all of its entire conclusions, you're going to wind up with very different policies than, you know, certainly open borders or even, you know, more open, some degree of open borders. There's still a whole lot of restrictions associated with that, such as who counts to be a stranger, who do you include, who gets excluded, what are the conditions for inclusion? And there's a lot to unpack there that doesn't translate well to any of the major policies. And that kind of bothered me, even if I could agree with the sentiment of this executive order is bad, the way it was trying to be promoted was there's a religious problem with this, such that Jews ought to have a religious problem with this. And taking it a step further, even, you know, the God of the Jewish people would object to that. And when you take it down to its logical conclusion, uh, I find found it very disturbing. Again, here in this case, even when I agreed with a specific sentiment of this travel ban is probably bad. So if there are a couple of points there, uh, first, are slogans needed? Uh, they're certainly helpful uh, if you're trying to you know, drop a lot of support for something. Um, but my approach to this is also uh, from my perspective as a rabbi, where uh, Torah, you know, the Jewish sources are things that I take particularly seriously. Um, and especially when I see things getting misused uh, for various you know, external purposes. Um, and I think one reason why I am sensitive to this is having you know, gone through various yeshivot, I've seen other people do the same thing for different agendas. 
And I've also seen people complain about it uh, for their various agendas. For example, if uh, someone from one of the more parochial elements says, here's what Judaism demands, because they'll quote X, Y, or Z, you'll find people will say, well, let's sit down and let's unpack this. Um, and, you know, they'll, you know, dissect it, tear it apart, and they'll say, oh, well, you see, there are multiple opinions, or this isn't absolutely, you know, 100% the way it's supposed to go. But when it comes to things of their own, uh, meaning uh, policies that they themselves are, um, uh, the policies that they themselves endorse, then all of a sudden, the language and the rhetoric kind of changes. And it's more than just uh, a specific issue, it's the method of how do you approach the religion? Because if it's okay for you to do this, then it should be okay for other people to do this, or okay for other people to selectively cite sources in order to achieve their ends. And there's a great deal of, for lack of a better term, hypocrisy of method. Um, when people say this type of approach is okay for us, but it's bad when you do it uh, to achieve your ends. And even if it might be very useful for a political perspective, I think it's very harmful to the religion, um, which may or may not matter to the activists as much, but that's also kind of my approach to it too. Uh, because Torah is not going to line up evenly to either Republicans or Democrats in, or conservatives or liberals or whatever parties you have, even as those parties evolve. No one is reading from the Torah 100% and drawing policies out of that, and maybe they shouldn't. Um, but the conflation of the two, I think, can be very harmful to both. Um, on one hand, you can substitute uh, a religious fundamentalism for whatever policies you have for liberal as well as conservative. And also, I think it leads to a misunderstanding of the religion itself, and it can very well cheapen the religion. Um, so you had mentioned about you know, the history behind it. Uh, in the Jewish texts, you have um, one of the uh, foundational texts of uh, the rabbinic tradition is the Mishnah. Uh, the Mishnah, it's hard to say, is, you know, would, would be considered a slogan, but it was designed in a way that it would be very easy to memorize. But for every line of Mishnah, you can have several discussions in the Talmud going back and forth over the details behind it. Um, so this, you know, even just you know, trying to uh, abridge or abbreviate complicated ideas into certain sayings may be necessary for the transmission, but it can't end there. Uh, I mean, you still have to know everything else behind it to sort of help you unpack it, uh, because otherwise it is so easy to manipulate and abuse these texts for your own ends. And again, if you're going to do it for the stuff that you like, someone else is going to do it for the stuff that they like. And I think for me, it's really important to keep those things separate.
so I think that's a great question. Um, and I think you can approach it from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, on one hand, if, uh, if you're, how to put this, if you are, I, I think one issue is how you phrase the, um, how you phrase what you're doing and just a subtle nuance of rhetoric between saying the following idea is supported or justified within Jewish sources and this is what everyone else must do. For me personally, I make a distinction between an individual choice, for example, how a person understands things and how a person votes, and another, once someone speaks categorically in the name of religion, with the implication that other people ought to follow it. I Meaning making that grand uh, statement of Judaism, excuse me, demands this policy or that policy. So sometimes it can even be a subtle shift. Um, uh, I'll call out uh, Zachary Schellenberger is an MD, PhD, and he wrote a wonderful piece along these lines in the foreword about gun control, where he didn't say Judaism mandates gun control, but he said how gun control could be compatible with certain Jewish sources, which is, you know, you can see it from, you know, on one hand, a very subtle thing. But for me, that's incredibly important because the statements that you make are much easier uh, to be verifiable with that. Where I think you still have the question, and I'm not sure if people, you know, have really thought this through, at least as much as I think they should, um, is that if you, you can say, well, we're allowed to vote based off of our religious values, even when our policies mean we're going to impose our religious values on other people, then you can't object when other religions do the same thing for their own values. So an example I give is I don't personally see much of a difference between saying my God doesn't want this woman to have an abortion or my God doesn't want these two people to get married and my God wants me to take your stuff and give it to someone else. If you want the ability to vote by your own values, even if you don't say it categorically in the name of your religion, I think that helps from the religious perspective. It doesn't help with the church state issue, and I'm not sure how to get around that because either you try to divorce things entirely, which you know people don't want to do. And as I've seen more in the past uh, couple of years since Trump's election, there is a great deal of very vocal, very religious political rhetoric coming to support leftist causes. Maybe it was always there and I just wasn't paying attention, but to me it's certainly more striking when it comes from organizations that are, had historically been very much, uh, very strict in terms of separation in church and state. And it's very hard to have it both ways and I don't think people have really thought that through. So regarding that second point, going through in depth is, isn't going to help that much. But if you do the study and you acknowledge, hey, this approach may fit within Judaism or it may get 80% and that's good enough for me, fantastic. It's something we can be inspired by. But then I would, I would sooner present it as, here's my opinion and here's how I got there, as opposed to any sort of implication that this is what Judaism says and making a categorical ruling, which we have enough trouble with for matters of, uh, you know, pretty much any matter of Jewish law, uh, to applying it to politics as well.
So first off, I think all of that stuff is, you know, can be fantastic. Uh, and even if it's not under Tikkun Olam, you know, there are other, you know, I mean, if you really want to get pedantic, uh, I think all of that stuff you'll find in the Talmud just maybe under different headings, like maybe Gimilut Hasadim of acts of kindness, um, matters of tzedakah, things like that, where... If it, and I would say here too, if it's done as a personal motivation of here's what I'm going to do to help make people's lives better, fantastic. Um, it could, however, cross the line of when it's done again prescriptively towards other people of here's what you have to do. Where I think it can get blurred is if tikkun olam is used to advocate for something that may actually go against Jewish law, um, which can happen. There was a story a while back uh, about uh, a Jewish guy who dressed up as Santa for Tikkun Olam. I don't know if that's strictly a violation of Jewish law. I haven't looked into that in detail. Um, but that certainly, I think, stretches it beyond its meaning in that it, you know, if you it would not be able to, I think, work to just anything that you personally happen to think makes the world a better place because you know, just as we argue over you know, morality, we can argue about what makes the world better and how would repairing the world be. Um, so I think that itself is, is a huge issue. And you also mentioned about redistributive economics, which I think absolutely comes up. Um, I remember reading a while back that someone objected to um, a justice being appointed to the Supreme Court uh, because of tikkun olam uh, for some policies that had like nothing to do with anything that you'd find in the Torah. And, you know, if, if it's just simply of, look, we have this idea of try to do good, here's how I define good, then you could just say, here's how I define good. I think the use of tikkun olam in that sense because it is attached to the religion, gives it a certain sense of gravitas that's being appropriated for whatever it is people that want to do. So instead of just saying, I'm going to do what I think is right, I'm going to hang my head on this idiom and say, oh, look, the, you know, Talmud uh, says, you know, hey, there's this idea of tikkun olam. This is how I define tikkun olam. And therefore, I'm within this religious rubric. And you can say the same thing about um, matters of justice, uh, which was so big I couldn't even deal with that because you could write books on that, where the Torah commands people do justice. What's justice? Well, you've got you know hundreds of pages and thousands more in commentary that try to hash out what is justice, and you know that and maybe you can come up with a grand general theory. People have tried, but it doesn't always work. Um, but it's much easier to just say something like, "Here's." You know, Torah says justice. Here's how I define justice. Therefore, the Torah says you should do what I say. So again, there too, I think there's a lot depends on the subtleties of how it is employed and what gets tacked on to that. Because if your personal idea of tikkun olam happens to go against the Torah, then, you know, you can say, well, oh, this is completely fine the way that I see the world. But in my opinion, then you're still messing around with a religion too much.
You know, so that's a great question. And it was, it's a fair critique. I wasn't trying to look at just um, the liberal side of the equation. It could just be that's what I happen to be exposed to more. Um, I haven't seen it as much, at least in the U.S. politics. That doesn't mean that it's not there. It could just be I'm not following enough people. I'm not following the correct people. Um, I think one issue that does come up, and you'll see this more in Israel than in the U.S., uh, would be the idea of modesty, which isn't technically a slogan, um, where you know it's certainly an idea that has very, uh, in my opinion, specific parameters within Jewish law that gets extended to a whole bunch of categories that are like pretty much, you know, uh, medieval and repressive towards women. So examples would be uh, blurring uh, pictures of women, uh, if not, you know, censoring them entirely, ripping off pictures of women on signs. Uh, Shoshana Keats Jaskol has put up with a whole bunch of this stuff in uh, Beit Shemesh where she lives. Um, and that would be one issue that I can see on that side. When I spoke to my sister um, about this, and this maybe I think a little bit more within, um, you know, certain more orthodox worlds in Israel um, of Chadasha Surmina Torah, which means, uh, or at least as it's used idiomatically, is something that is new is prohibited by the Torah. And where she is, this is something that she gets encountered, where people say this over and over again to say any sort of innovation or any sort of change is in fact prohibited by the fact that it is new and it's never been done before. Even if it doesn't violate any biblical law or any rabbinic law, the mere fact that it has never been done, that proves that it is forbidden. Um, I see that more in the Jewish cultural side of things, but I have not seen such things invoked on the grand political stage as much in the same way. Um, yeah, at least not from the Jewish side of things. If I spent more time reading up, um, you know, perhaps evangelicals or, you know, other you know, other religions and other denominations, I may see them use a few things, you know, a little bit more.
So I'd say from the feedback that I've gotten so far, it's been kind of interesting. I've had some people have made the comment that you did that they tend to focus more on the liberal side than the conservative side, which, you know, I, 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 it's something I appreciate, but also part of me kind of, you know, felt it was irrelevant because, well, let's say it was even more the liberal side. You know, the liberals should at least be held to the exact same standards that you'd hold the conservatives. So leave it at that. Um, some got annoyed at some of the things that I quoted. Um, there was one comment on uh, the piece on Selim Elohim, which is um, that the idea that all mankind was created in the image of God. Uh, going through uh, Midrashic homiletical texts on the subject is very much at odds with the way a lot of people are taught. And these are texts that uh, you know, aren't that well known. They're not particularly studied. Uh, and one person said that I quoted unauthoritative texts. And you know, my approach was, you know, these aren't authoritative. It's not a matter of law. These are all different aspects of Jewish thought from the same canonical text. So, you know, if you think this is a valid compendium, then all of these opinions have to be valid. You may not like it, but you can't pretend that it's not there. Um, as far as the others, there are people who I think they appreciated the concept behind it. Um, even again, you have for, for people who are conservatives, you know, the partisans, I think, either way would either be predisposed to liking it or predisposed to disliking it. Um, I think that there, even though they may not be as vocal, I think that there's uh, at least enough people who do get annoyed at the politicization of the religion. Um, I had given the class on Love the Stranger um, at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale last year which for the most part happens to be a very politically left-leading synagogue. Um, and at least with the audience that I had there, they seemed very appreciative of my approach, which was to say, not that necessarily that the left's policies are wrong, because I'm fully, I will full, freely admit, most of these political policies are well above my pay grade. That's not my expertise. So I'm not going to say right or wrong. I think those should be defended on the merits. But the general core idea that the politics doesn't line up with the religion and perhaps we should separate them is something that I think resonated with a lot of people, even as they were sympathetic to the particular policies being advocated. Um, there are people for whom it's uncomfortable and they may not know why. Um, and I don't know how many of they are because you know, it seems that there are a lot more out there that just don't know, don't know how to have the conversation about it either because they don't know enough um, or because they just uh, they, they, they prefer to fit in with their community so they're not going to raise any trouble. Um, and I think there are others, again, I don't know how many who genuinely appreciate learning more about the sources. Um, there are, you do have, a, I don't say a lot, but I, I've encountered enough people who don't want to think. They just say, tell me what to do and I'm just going to do it. I've actually had in my rabbinic capacity, someone tell me, just give me the answer. I don't want to have to think about it. And you'll have those. And you'll have other people who are so so invested in their confirmation bias that it doesn't matter 
what evidence or proof you say or either for or against, as long as you say stuff they like, they're going to follow it. But you also have people who may be politically active who also want to have a better understanding of the religion. And as if it get if that keeps getting drowned out by all of the politics, they're missing that out. So if someone can at least address these subjects with uh, a certain degree of reverence and not trying to score any points, you can actually have a certain engagement behind it and perhaps expand the thinking. Um, again, they don't have to change their policies or their politics or you know register for uh, different parties. But at least if they realize, oh, okay, you know, I may support this policy. It doesn't line up exactly with Judaism, and that's okay. For me, that's even a win. And I think that's something that you, there are a lot more people out there that you know, feel the same way. So, I mean, I, I would say even from my own experience, the people who say that social media is generally bad, I can understand why they would say that. Um, and my perspective is maybe a little bit different than someone who's coming to it new. I started on Twitter, I think, in 2008. Uh, and it was for me more like a front end to Facebook at the time. And it was never something that I took seriously. Um, but back then, Twitter was not toxic. Uh, one example I give is if someone were to ask me a question about Judaism, I would assume, hey, this person is asking a very sincere question. And I didn't have to assume a priori that this person is a troll or if something that I happen to say that might have been imprecise. Someone's going to dig that up and you know, try to hold that against me. Not that that's happened, but I mean, to me, I should say. But you have uh, I think there was one essayist called it like a certain um, uh, outrage archaeologist where you, you start you know, going through a person's whole record on Twitter to find one offhanded comment made eight years ago and, you know, blow that up just because they happen to be in the news for that moment and potentially ruin someone's life. Um, so my whole approach to Twitter was it, it, I was never in that toxic world as much. Um, when I moved to Israel in 2014, my patterns on Twitter changed drastically for two reasons. One, uh, in a different time zone, seven hours ahead of New York where I lived, 
the action on Twitter is completely different. So now when I wake up in the morning, you hear, you see like the last gaps, gasps of insanity from, you know, wound up Americans who, you know, are just going to sleep and, you know, it comes down for a bit until Americans wake up and they just wake up angry, I found. Um, and I also now have a full-time job, which, you know, gets in the way of my tweeting, which you could argue is probably a good thing. So I can't get involved in as many discussions as I had before. So for me, I have enough distance that I don't need to get sucked in as badly as, say, a lot of other people do. Um, regarding the Twitter classes, you know, those were interesting. I, I'm not the only one who, who does it. I, I definitely know that. I don't know if I, I, other people may have done something similar beforehand. To explain uh, to the listeners, when I give classes and many rabbis give classes um, on Jewish texts, we put together a source sheet, uh, which has primary sources plus translations. You have it all laid out a couple of pieces of paper and you go through the texts that way. And it's a very efficient way of covering particular topics. Um, so I have a whole bunch of them made from uh, my time as a pulpit rabbi and a bunch more that I keep making. And these could be very useful for Twitter because you can just take a, a little sn uh, image snippet of a source, paste it into a tweet, and you can add commentary or you know one or two lines of commentary on the source that users can read. And an advantage of using the images is you know, Twitter has a character limit. When you put it in an image of the text, uh, you don't have that limit. You may have to split it up into a couple of images if there's just too much there, but you know you can put a lot more information there. And more importantly, you can include uh, the original Hebrew because translations uh, can always be off. Um, I think in terms, there are people I know who uh, find it useful. There are other people who said, you know, warn me next time so I can mute you because depending on how long they go, it just, eats up their entire feed and you know I can get that but I can live with it um, but for you know certain people who may not be as exposed to it uh, they seem they do seem appreciative uh, and a challenge that I feel that I have is you know Twitter from certainly people in politics will know you know certainly more than more than I would uh, Twitter with Twitter you can spread misinformation so fast uh, around the world. And again, thanks to confirmation bias, as long as you say stuff that people are going to like or agree with, they're just going to keep on retweeting it and amplifying it, and no one's gonna bother to check it out. So, you know, you could have someone who talks categorically about Judaism, and as long as your audience knows less than you do, such that you, um, uh, you can pretty much say whatever you want, knowing you're not gonna get called out on stuff. So if you don't really respect the audience and you just wanna pontificate your particular positions, well, sure, you just go right ahead because you're preaching to the people that you want and you know in the back of your head that the people you're talking to don't know enough to find flaws in your argument, don't know enough to point out, hey, you're blatantly misreading the source and that's not what it actually says. Um, so from my perspective, because like I see this go on enough times, but I can't respond to every single one because I just don't have the time. So that's kind of frustrating on my end. So the best I can do, I can't stop the flow of misinformation. The best thing I can do is try to counter it with the best information that I have. 
Um, and with the same sort of approach that I had at the synagogue, which was if I'm going to address a congregation, no matter what it is, I have to be very careful with the claims that I'm making and making sure that I don't make any claim that I cannot defend with a source. And sometimes that means not speaking categorically about Judaism, but rather pointing out, hey, there's actually a range of opinions here. Um, and I also, when I do this, I'm, I'm very explicit that I'm not being comprehensive because you, you just can't be comprehensive. Um, and the, my approach is usually not to take a definitive stand on something, but rather to show, hey, there's actually a range here. And once you show that there's a range, then the people who say it must be A or it must be B, they're not, they're already not 100% because they now have to deal with all of those sources that contradict them. Now, if you have a certain hermeneutic about how to process all that data, well, okay, you can come up with something. But, you know, on the very basic level to show people, hey, all this stuff is complicated. If I can get people to at least think there's a lot more here than what certain people would have you think, that for me is a win. So for me, it's setting the goals, trying to put sources out there. People are going to do with it as they see fit. But I also think by if the goal is to try to present a range of opinions, um, then I don't think it's as threatening to people who hold of, you know, oh, I prefer this or I prefer that as much as it would be more of a threat to the people who would say it must be this or it must be that. And those people, you know, I'm OK annoying. But for everyone else, it's not going to be that much of a threat to say, hey, both exist. So you could still believe what you want, but maybe you may not be as fanatical about it. And you know what? In today's day and age, it's an incremental win, but it's, you know, I'll take what I can get. Uh, for most things, absolutely. Um, you know, there are going to be a couple of areas. You know, I don't think that, you know, in my own opinion, I think there are certain definitive statements that can be made, assuming that um, that they can uh, you know, get demonstrated. In fact, one of the sacred slogans that I had uh, was on the limits of pluralism. And I showed like, hey, actually, you know, not everything goes. There are objective limits, you know, things that you're just not that you just cannot do. Um, but, you know, on the whole, absolutely. Uh, just think a little bit more, learn a little bit more, see what the range of opinions are. It doesn't mean that you cannot reach a conclusion, um, but you just have to be a lot more thoughtful about it um, because there is so, so much out there and so many different ways of reading texts, so many different ways, uh, so many different approaches, I should say, of uh, weighing the authoritativeness of different texts. Um, and that's something which is always in the back of my head too, because if someone happens to quote a rabbi and you wanna rely on that particular person's authority, well, then I would have to ask, well, why do you rely on this rabbi here, but not on this other stuff that he says that you don't wanna follow? Um, 
you know, so for that reason, I tend to focus on the Talmud because it's something everyone you know, agrees is at least somewhat canonical and authoritative, though we can debate the details. Um, but these are all really critical questions that have to be asked that very few people uh, really bother to sit and think about, um, and let alone try to communicate to everyone else, because I find particularly more amongst uh, the more activist types, the, the goal is more to get people to believe something or to follow along a certain path uh, than it is to have people understand. Um, and I don't think that that's, you know, it's, it's not always a bad thing to, you know, nudge people. It's what a lot of rabbis do. Um, but I think that also depends on your role. And I think there are ways of doing it that are, in my opinion, more honest than others. Um, so yeah, if the goal is to educate, well then educate and show these things. And if you wanna have an opinion, say, here's the opinion that I hold and here's why and explain why. It was something that I did a lot in my own synagogue where uh, when I would you know, sort of teach matters of Jewish law, I would explain a case. I would say, here's my opinion, here's the basis for my opinion and go through this. And after a while, people would pick up, oh, you know, he's actually has a system there. There's an approach that he has for how he makes certain decisions. And while I'll say this is okay and that's not okay and vice versa. Um, but that's something which takes a lot of time and I'm not sure Twitter is really the best thing for that. But if you can't do that, then at least realize for pretty much any idea that someone has about Judaism, there's going to be someone else who disagrees and someone else who argues. And if you want to take a side in that argument, that's okay, nothing wrong with that, but you really have to do your homework first and look into it and spend a lot of time wrestling with it, which is 95% of what the Talmud is, of rabbis just wrestling and art with subjects and arguing about lots of different questions from different angles and going through in, you know, in sometimes painful detail to get to the very specific points of disagreement to reach a conclusion. And there's a lot of that in Judaism and you know, to simply reduce it to one or two lines, it can be useful for certain degrees of transmission provided you go through all of those details um, uh, at some point, but it can also just as easily be used to manipulate for those who don't know any better. Oh, sure. Well, first off, thank you very much for having me on. This was most enjoyable. Um, you want to find me on Twitter. My handle is at J-Y-U-T-E-R. Uh, my website is joshuter.com, J-O-S-H-Y-U-T-E-R.com. Uh, and if you want to reach out, I've got a contact form there too. If you want to send me an email, uh, I try to respond as quickly as, uh, as possible. And yeah, feel free to hit me up. My uh, direct messages are open on Twitter too, if that's a bit easier for you. Uh, if you have any questions, I'll you know, try to answer the best that I can. But again, same disclaimer applies. Just as everyone disagrees with everyone on some point, whatever I tell you, I promise you someone out there is going to disagree with me.
Okay.